Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today it is truly my honor to say we are joined by Asha Rangappa. Asha is a senior lecturer at the Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a former associate dean at Yale Law School. Prior to her current position, Asha served as a special agent in the New York Division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. You see Asha all over your TV. She is a legal and national security analyst for CNN. You have very limited time, and we are grateful for some of it. Welcome, Asha, and thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. So I actually don't want to start with the impeachment, which is probably just where I am emotionally today. And I want to begin by looking forward a little bit. You recently came out with a report listing 10 recommendations to bolster legal defenses against threats of foreign influence in our democracy. Something that's happened in the past is going to happen again. Can you remind us, what are these foreign threats? Well, the foreign threat that was addressed in that report, and by the way, I I contributed to it. Um, it, I didn't actually write that myself. Um, It was written by the Alliance for Securing Democracy, and I was on the kind of board of advisors for that, but it's worth a read. It has a deep dive into the ongoing threat of foreign influence in our elections. And I think that what we've seen since 2016 is both the direct and indirect influence of foreign countries in our elections. Um, the, the direct threat, obviously, is active collusion. You know, people who uh, are wittingly or unwittingly collaborating um, to further the interests of a foreign government by using their powers in political office here in the United States, which is terrifying. Um, But then there's also the indirect influence, which can be through money, it can be through disinformation operations, um, or a number of other ways that, at least in Russia, which is what I focus on, they call active measures, uh, basically ways of destabilizing uh, the United States, in this case, by essentially undermining the integrity and legitimacy of our democratic processes. Asha, let's go back briefly to the first Donald J. Trump impeachment and whether or not that relates to something that you and I have been talking about, information warfare and issues of disinformation. I think because you mentioned the last impeachment, and I think that's another area about how information is or can be weaponized. And that that impeachment, that this was over the call by Trump to the president of Ukraine, uh, President Zelensky, asking him to make an announcement that he was investigating the Bidens. And that was really couched as a quid pro quo. But it was basically an attempt at information warfare. What Trump was asking Zelensky to do was to go on television and make an announcement that Trump's political opponent was under investigation in a foreign country for corruption, basically. And it didn't really matter if the underlying you know, facts were true or that I don't even think it mattered to Trump whether Ukraine, in fact, began an investigation. What he wanted was the announcement of the investigation so that there was 
um, would be a perception in the mind of American voters that this other candidate was, you know, under a cloud of suspicion, that this third country had even determined that there was a cloud of suspicion. And so when we start to think of it, you know, I wrote a piece on that, that what Trump was trying to do was basically a covert propaganda operation. Um, But, you know, it's hard for people because it's intangible and it's talking about how it impacts our perception uh, for people to, I think, fully grasp that angle of it. So that's a really important part of what happened in the first impeachment. And I remember that piece that you wrote, and it was a great piece, and it really explained the background of what is happening here. And this is something I did not think that when we decided we we had taped this episode, I didn't think I was going to ask you this question, but let's talk about the second impeachment, because I didn't (laughs) think that I would be using the words, the second impeachment. So we are recording this on the eve of the second Senate trial of Donald J. Trump. And if I could, let's start with a question that I get a lot, which is, what's the point of impeachment if President Trump is out of office and his term is over? Why, you know, why are we going through this exercise at all? I would say that there are a few reasons. One is just the actual potential punishment, the tangible practical punishment, which, as you know, Jessica, if if Trump were to be convicted in a Senate trial, one of the punishments that could be imposed on him would be a prohibition from holding an office of public trust again. And effectively, he couldn't run for president. So, um, you know, if you feel that he has effectively disqualified himself uh, from you know, apart from what the requirements are in the Constitution, that just as a matter of what he did was so egregious that he should face that bar, there is that. But I also see impeachment as, in many ways, creating its own body of law, in a way, about the the boundaries of uh, the, the office of the president. Um, because our criminal law is inadequate for that purpose. Um, it's a useful guide, and certainly the president should be held accountable to you know, regular crimes that everyone else is accountable for. Um, he's not above the law. But we also hold the president to a much higher standard. Um, you know, I, I expect more from the president than the person who sells me cupcakes at the store around the corner. Um, because he he has a fiduciary duty. And so I think that impeachment gets to the heart of why some actions are even more egregious because it was the president who did it. And our criminal laws can't address that because, you know, that's it's meant to apply to everyone. There's, you know, Congress is never going to pass a law that only applies to whoever is in the office of the presidency. So I think to me, there is value whether or not Trump is convicted. And I've, I've always pressed this, that there is value in establishing that something is an impeachable offense and that it rises to that level. Yeah, I first of all, after the last administration, I'm not sure that I do hold the president to a higher standard than the person <laughs> who sells you cupcakes. I have to be honest with that. Um, and I think that's that's right, which is 
again, this is not a court of law. And we need to say to society, this transgresses our norms. This is just too far. And as you said, that there is this specific punishment. It's not just removal from office. The Constitution says two things. You can be removed or you can be disqualified. And it seems to me that it makes very little sense to allow presidents to either engage in the worst type of subversive behavior at the end of their term, knowing that they could essentially get out of get a get out of impeachment free card, or to allow other office holders to just resign and therefore avoid the consequence of an impeachment. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, that answers my next question, which is, well, I, I don't know if you want to weigh in on this, but then I get, okay, I know, you know, there is the disqualification that's on the table, and I know you're making a record for everybody, but we know the Senate's not going to convict. And I have a response to that, but I'm wondering what your opinion on that is. Basically, well, we know that, you know, there won't be 67 members of the Senate. So let's just get on with our lives. You know, I think you've already said it, which is essentially that our constitution embodies our norms and that not everything should happen in a, in a court of law. And I do want to pivot to a court of law, but is there anything else you want to weigh in on, on the impeachment and the purpose of having it essentially, even if we already know what the outcome will be? Yeah, I do. Um, well, for one thing, the jury in the impeachment trial uh, will be accountable. So, you know, um, I mean, I guess in a regular jury, you'd need a unanimous jury to convict. But if you had a hung jury, I don't think you necessarily know unless they, the jurors tell you who voted to convict and who who voted against it. Um, and here, you know, I've seen a lot of people saying they should have a blind vote and that will make it easier to convict. And um, I get that, but I also think that it's really important for senators to have accountability, to be on record as saying that they were okay with this. This is something that will go down in history um, as, you know, one of the lowest moments of um, our our government. And I I want them to put their names to the paper. But beyond that... You know, there are times it's true that prosecutors, especially federal prosecutors, will bring a case only if they are reasonably sure that they will be able to secure a conviction. But there are some instances where the issue is so important that even if there is a chance that the defendant may get off, that it is important to bring the case symbolically. So if there's like child trafficking or something like that, you want to try to vindicate justice. Um, And if the chips don't fall the way you want them to, um, so be it. But you don't let a transgression just, you just don't let it go because you can't get the outcome you want. And that's what I would say in this case. I totally agree with you. This is the moment where you say to our elected representatives, go on record, do it Mm -hmm. publicly. Tell me, you know, you don't have to tell me why, but I want to know what your vote is. And I think we should all know for the history books where people came down. And I think we should all evidence, even if we know what the outcome can be, we should all evidence what type of society we at least tried to be. We tried to, some of us tried to be a type of society to hold uh, the president accountable for this type of behavior. 
And it's not just the president, though. And this brings us to a different topic, which is what about members of Congress who, in my view, pose a national security risk? And I'll start with Senator Josh Halley, who, as far as I can see, supported the insurrection in verbal and nonverbal ways. Is there recourse for a senator who engages in this type of behavior? Is there legal or political action that we should take? Well, he could be expelled from the Senate by, I believe, a two-thirds vote of that chamber. Uh, There's also the... Uh, there's also Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, though it's never been applied, as far as I'm aware, since uh, right after the Civil War. But it does uh, pro- basically disqualify someone de facto um, if they have either engaged in or provided aid or comfort to, um, you know, any kind of insurrection against the United States. So, you know, there are these ways in which he could be punished and taken out of his position. I doubt that as a legal, like a criminal law matter, I don't think, I think it would be very hard to meet the threshold based on his words and actions, you know, for something like incitement or seditious conspiracy. I think it's too removed. Um, We keep relying on, and, and we, did this with Trump. We're like, what law can we get him Mm -hmm. on the hook for? And, you know, how can we, how can he be punished? And maybe like the answer is don't elect crappy criminal people to begin with, because, you know, we're not, again, our, our criminal laws, which is what we defaulted to basically in the last three, four years, it's just not equipped to deal with people who are essentially failing in their fundamental fiduciary obligation to act in the public's trust and to uphold their oath to defend the constitution and essentially put the values of democracy over everything else, that this is where we are. And so we're, we're scrambling to find these ways to hold them accountable or to punish them. And what the bigger problem is, is that we have people that we are electing into office who are not bound to or motivated by principle and um, basically are are self-promoting and willing to, I think, violate any norm to, I guess, to, to stay in power. And I'm not really sure where we go from there. Yeah, that is exactly as terrifying as I expected uh, you to get at a certain point. And I, and I completely agree. And this is what I thought when people said, "Oh, the you know the self pardon can the president pardon himself?" And there was a lot of discussion about is this constitutional. And my my response is no. But the solution isn't to change the constitution or try and pass a statute that interprets the constitution. The solution is don't elect a president who brings us to the brink of all of Mm -hmm. these open constitutional questions to begin with. And before I let you go, having now explained to us that we should not rely on the criminal justice system, I did want to ask you just briefly uh, as we're ending about the criminal justice system (laughs) and your, I wanted to, because you have such a unique expertise, um, 
I wanted to ask for your opinion. Do you think that the president, now he's that he's no longer the president, do you think Donald Trump will face criminal charges? I do. I think he'll face charges, at least at the state level, if not the federal level. And I think his pattern of behavior, you know, one of the things you learn in the FBI is people behave in patterns. You know, it's very rare for someone to just suddenly, like, go off on a tangent and do something that they were not really you know, wired to do or or hadn't shown signs of doing before. And his pattern of behavior is one of unethical, corrupt, criminal activity in everything. I mean, in everything. I just look at like what is coming out about, you know, two days before the insurrection, we were reeling over this call that he made to the Georgia Secretary of State. And, you know, we're now finding out that he was going to you know, get the Justice Department to go on a witch hunt to uh, turn to overturn the election for him. I mean, it's crazy. And so I, I think that beyond what we all what he's already done, even if he does have some kind of self pardon that would hold up in court, I think he's going to still keep committing crimes. And, uh, you know, I, I call it the OJ effect. I mean, he may get away with it this time, but I think he's going to keep doing it. And, um, it will catch up with him because what he's done by becoming president is he's put the eye of Sauron on him. And so uh, sooner or later, I do think that he he will face criminal charges. And I think that at some point, especially as other people in the Republican Party begin to get more, you know, basically who ride his coattails and get more power or authority or influence, I think they'll be glad for him to be out of the way. And I don't think he's going to have the kind of defenders um, that he might have at this moment in time. I hope that's right. At this point, I'm still putting far more faith into the person who sells you cupcakes. And I do want to ask you at the end uh, what flavor you buy. But I think that's right. Now, the last substantive question for you, Asha, is you have been one of the nation's top commenters in tr- in walking us through the legal implications of what has happened over the last four years. And this is a really, really broad question, but I'm wondering, now that we're ha- we have a moment to take a step back, do you look at our legal system and think, God, there's one constitutional provision or there's one statute or there's one regulation where I wish I could change that or Maybe is the answer more to your point before, let's not elect people who bring us to these questions all the time. Uh, so I, I'm wondering if you had your magic wand, is there something that you would like to do to say this, it's not going to fix everything, but I'd really like to see this get done? Yeah, I I don't know that there is a legal fix. I mean, I think what we have, you know, we're on a boat, there's like 50 holes in the bottom, you know, and the water's coming in and we're, you know, it's like trying to create laws to fix all of this is, you know, just playing whack-a-mole because you're never going to be able to imagine every possible scenario where power could be abused, for example. And by the way, I assume that you're talking about the presidency specifically, like not like, oh, I wish the second amendment was written differently. Yes. I'm sorry. Not just with respect to the presidency, the chief executive and how our laws um, really treat the chief executive. 
I mean, it's it's and this is I teach national security law, and this is sort of the overarching theme, especially as you as we go into you know the president taking action and Congress trying to check it or or create oversight is it's it's whack-a-mole um you know the congress you have to at some point if you were going to have an effective chief executive there has to be a certain amount of latitude and discretion um that's given so that they can act quickly so we see this for example in our immigration laws that you know the president should be able to um uh the congress delegates the authority to uh bar a particular class of people from entering the United States, presumably in the case of like an emergency, say like a pandemic or or something like that, if they're, you know, to prevent some kind of um, immediate harm or to declare uh, an emergency in the United States if if something happens and Congress is unable to, to meet. And what we've seen is that when you have someone who is willing to abuse that power, you get things like the Muslim ban, you get things like declaring a national emergency in order to reappropriate money that Congress refused to appropriate to build a border wall. So I don't know that you can plug those things without then tying the hands of an executive who might actually use his or her powers in beneficial ways, in ways that we want them to exercise them. And I do really think that the answer is that that we assume that the person holding this office is going to have a basic threshold of judgment and you know some kind of ethics or or something um and as you know Jessica and so much of our constitution is it's what's not there it's the norms that have built up right over time you know there's nothing that says in in article 2 that the department of justice and fbi should be independent of the White House. It doesn't even mention those two agencies. But that's something that has developed over time and it has strengthened the rule of law and it's why we hold fast to it. So I don't know. I think it would be very hard to try to fill those gaps using explicit modifications or laws. And in many ways, the fact that you have to use modifications, like explicit modifications in laws, really points to a breakdown in trust of the government. I think that's such an important point. And this is why I'm always worried whenever we see on any level bad behavior by politicians, we would say, you know, let's plug the hole, let's fix it, let's have a new law, let's give them less discretion. Mm-hmm. And one, we have to figure out if Trump is an aberration or a pattern, but two, not every piece of bad behavior should be try and like, should we try and patch up mm-hmm. with a new law? that just limits the next person who's going to try and, you know, endeavor to use their power in the best possible way. I mean, this is, you know, the president has broad power when it comes to national emergencies and that's Uh typically worked out pretty well. Uh And then we saw, well, you know what, with that power and that discretion can come abuse. But, and this is, you laid out, I think, so in such an important way, the balance that we have to try and strike between a constitution and a set of laws that gives our leaders enough discretion to actually do their jobs, but enough barriers to try and prevent them from basically going too far. And and that we've kind of had this 
pact with our leaders for a long time. Like we think you'll lie to us a little bit, but not just not too much. And um, well, and I think we also assume that the excesses of the executive branch will be corrected by congressional oversight. And I think one of the big problems that we've seen over definitely the last four years, but it's probably been building for a while is Congress really abdicating that role. And particularly, you know, Republicans seeing themselves as extensions of the executive branch if their party is in power, uh, as opposed to, you know, seeing themselves as a co-equal branch that needs to take an independent look at, at those actions. Um, I think if I had to give one thing that I do think could, could make a difference and would make these both like the oversight piece and, uh, help to check some of the excesses of the executive branch, uh, is to strengthen our whistleblower protections or to, mm-hmm. and, and the inspector generals. Like, I think that though that component, um, the inspector generals and the agencies and the protections that are given to whistleblowers are that extra buffer for when right. some of these other guardrails break down. And I think we've seen that play out in, in several different ways over the last four years. Yeah, that's that's an important point. There is a little protective layer that we can wrap. And I think that, that that's exactly it. Asha Rangappa, I have loved chatting with you. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you for having me. It was great. You can find Asha on Twitter at Asha Rangappa, ends with an underscore. I think everybody listening has found Asha on Twitter. She has a lot of followers. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners for all of your support. We love having these conversations. For me, it was such a personal treat to be able to talk to Asha about all of these issues. And we wish you a great day and we'll see you next time.